It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the studios in the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, Las Vegas police are looking for the person who killed a renowned Las Vegas Review Journal reporter. His name is Jeff German, and we're learning even more about this case today. But as I stand here tonight, equality and democracy are under assault. We'll talk about the president's speech from last Thursday night and... The Republican Party right now is led by a dishonest demagogue. Why the reporter who offered up that next day coverage on CNN found himself out of a job by the end of the day. There's a lot more that hopefully we'll get to as well, but we're gonna start with what's been happening in Jackson, Mississippi, where the water is flowing through the tanks and into people's homes again. And according to a news release from City Hall, most people should have normal water pressure. That wasn't the case just a few days ago, where as much as 80% of the population did not have access to safe, clean tap water, and a boil order still does remain in place there. This is reminiscent in so many ways of the Flint water crisis, and it seems like municipalities aren't learning from what happened there. Yeah, you know, they, they've had water problems for a generation uh, in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and it, it all goes down, uh, boils down to they just don't have the tax base to support the, the, the normal infrastructure that a city is supposed to have, mainly because most of the, the tax base has moved outside of the city. Uh, to the surrounding area. And really what this is, is a, a classic white flight. So a lot of those, uh, uh, a lot of those uh, uh, high uh, paying jobs, a lot of the, the big businesses, they've all moved out. The tax base drops. They don't have the money to, to pay for water, streets, police, fire, all of those things. And basically what happened is the whole thing shut down. And I, to a certain extent, I think the city was basically saying, or at least the city officials were saying, look, there's nothing else we can do. We just don't have the funds. We can't get it from the federal government. We can't get it from the state. We that, don't have the tax base. That, I think, is and, and there you go. You know, and I think that's something that other uh, states and municipalities could learn from. Uh, I think what you're seeing a lot, and the, the Washington Post, I thought, did a really uh, good analysis of this over the weekend, um, where they talked about white flight then begets the flight of middle-class blacks right. because if you want to live a decent lifestyle and you have the money to move you are going to do that well and, decent lifestyle access to water well, no, isn't and, even decent but, lifestyle. But that's my basic point, life sustainment. no absolutely yeah. but the point of the story was that one of the reasons they have lost access now and it's now catastrophic yeah is uh, because the state legislature there refused to provide the funds. And I think we see this over and over again in states where the urban centers become whipping boys and um, large areas of the state that are agricultural or rural and feel like they're not benefiting 
will then say no. And I but think, it's even more so than that. I mean, what happens is you have these suburban corridors around these areas that of where the tax base has moved to. Exactly. That had they have the funds, they have the schools, they have the water, they have the the nice roads, and this is where people move to. So they say they can say, "I live in Jackson, Mississippi," but in fact, you live in the suburbs around Jackson, Mississippi. You see the same thing in St. Louis. You see it happen in in Kansas City. It happens in Dallas. It happens in a lot of these these municipalities where the the, the city proper doesn't have the resources that these the surrounding areas have, but people claim that they live in those areas. They live in that city. So CBS News, among others, also quickly jumped on to the racial makeup of this community, Jackson, the city itself being predominantly black. Um, we talk about the need for climate change reporting, but environmental justice, how does that figure into the picture as well? It, it, it fits in there hugely. I yeah. mean, you know, we have one of our colleagues right now who's uh, uh, Christina Misselon is down on the Gulf Coast doing 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 research on this very topic. The fact that it's not just a, a natural environmental that is impacting these communities, but it's also man-made uh, environmental uh, impacts as having where you have the chemical companies that are are, are moving into or, or established next to communities of color. Same thing in Jackson, Mississippi, where you have a lot of these communities of color are the whole entire 80% of the city of Jackson are dealing with these same sorts of issues from a water standpoint. So those communities are in areas that you have man-made uh, environmental impact that has a has a devastating effect on their everyday lives. Well, and it's, it's part of it is saying we're not all on the same ship, USS America. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not um, we're not all getting there. And I will say, you know, from a journalist standpoint, uh, I think it was very unintentional. But I think we as journalists fed into that a little bit because post Watergate, everybody needed a scalp. You know, everybody wanted to be Woodstein, and so. Sometimes I think we created scandals where there weren't scandals, and so now everybody's saying they're all crooks, they're all terrible, and nobody is willing to trust each other enough to say, we have to compromise, we have to have faith in each other, we have to believe that if we provide better water service for the big city in our area, all of us are going to be better off because those big cities are the economic engines that everybody else relies on. But there's more to it than that, though. You also have this not in my backyard. So when a company comes in and they want to build somewhere, it's much easier for them to build in these communities because these communities don't have, don't the, have the political power that another community will have. And they say, OK, you will we will allow you to build it here. But if they wanted to build it in, say, one of those suburban areas, that that community would rise up and put political pressure on those who are making a decision not to build. And there. not just the political power, but the economic power as Absolutely. well and so that they're going to communities that are going to offer them tax breaks because they're going to come in they're going to bring jobs and therefore we're going to cut them a deal on property tax or whatever the taxes might be to even establish as long their, as it's not in my backyard right it's in somebody else exactly and when they're not paying the property taxes there goes the infrastructure right, at the same right. time because the municipal it, it's an evil evil cycle right Thursday night, President Biden's so-called soul of the nation speech from Philadelphia. Did you watch it? 
I, I read snip, about it. I, I yeah. read about it. I saw some snippets of it. Okay, so I was watching on MSNBC mainly because I knew that I'd find it. I was doing some other things around the house and wasn't wanting to like play remote control jockey trying to find it. But what I found out after the fact was it wasn't quite so well broadcast. It wasn't out there as much as maybe some people had thought it would be. The network skipping it, claiming that it was a political speech, and instead chose to run sitcoms. Uh, I'm not really surprised by that part of it, especially okay. in the way in which the White House uh, previewed it okay. and a lot of the things that he was talking about, and especially in the current political climate where you have differing definitions of democracy and freedom and, and all of those those well, patriotic slogans. Well, and we're 60 slogans. days out from an election. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so I think, I mean, that's a, a typical, and I think Ernest is right, uh, all of the signals that the White House gave were that this was going to be a very political speech. So, uh, and, you know, consider the context we're in. So how did this end up getting covered when you were talking about how you were writing or reading about it? How, how was yeah. it written? How did some of that language and choice of language come across in terms of conveying the political? Well, I think what yeah. you saw, you saw uh, most journalists, I think, yoked together two speeches mm -hmm. that he gave in the same week, one a day or two before, which was overtly political. It was at a campaign style rally. And then this one, which was styled as a more serious uh, kind of presidential uh, speech. The but the themes were very much yeah. the same. And really, these are the themes that uh, Joe Biden has been hitting since his inauguration. Uh, he brought this up at the very beginning, saying that he believes democracy is in danger worldwide, and uh, particularly at the home front. So these are not really new themes, I think. Um, but again, it's, it's coming in a context that is so highly politicized, I think it's really hard for the president to get the nation's attention right now. Yeah, and, and I, I think you're right on that point. I mean, I think part of what we're seeing is that you have the, 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 the two sides, the, those who are really engaged in the politics, both on the left and the right, are, are in a pitched battle. And with the Republicans, they're in a pitch battle within their own party trying to figure out what to do. And the Democrats are to a certain yeah. extent. But there's a large swath of the of the of the middle, shall we say, that have they're just tired of it. They they they've they've moved on to I found a streaming service, you know, the NFL is coming back in, the baseball playoffs are supposed about to start, uh, my kids are back in school. I got so many other things to do. I, I'm I'm tired of the the Trump this, Biden that, you know, left, right. I'm just I'm checking out. And my fear is that it's going to have an impact on the midterm elections where people are just tired of it and they're, they're going to choose to sit out on both sides. Yeah, well, I think the other thing is, I think this was largely by the president a sop to his own party. I mean, Joe Biden is not a conflict guy. He is a compromise guy. and um, But he is under pressure from his own party to get out there and be as rough and tough and as uh, brash as the other side, uh, which I'm not sure is really the best way to respond um, to that kind of, um, but it's hard. It's very difficult and it's very tempting. And I think he's under tremendous pressure from the Democrats to, to give back as good as he's getting. But it does provide content for the cable news networks oh, in yeah. the business.
build up toward the election. And I think this Biden, again, like you're saying, playing to, to, to his base, want to be in that environment because that's that's what's going to be happening in, in within the next 60 days. So there you have it. The day after coverage cost at least one reporter his job. Take a listen to this snippet. You're about to hear the voice of John Harwood. These are not honest disagreements. The Republican Party right now is led by a dishonest demagogue. Many, many Republicans are rallying behind his lies about the 2020 election and other things as well. And a significant portion or a uh, sufficient portion uh, of the constituency that they're leading attacked the Capitol on January 6th violently by uh, offering pardons or suggesting pardons for those people who violently attacked the Capitol uh, which you've been pointing out uh, numerous times this morning, Donald Trump made Joe Biden's point for him. So a few minutes after that live shot on CNN, Harwood tweeted that it would be his last day at the cable network, um, finding out after he had said that, that he was among the latest on-air staffers to be released from their contract before it was over. Are we sure he found out uh, before that's what after? I was going to ask that I'm, I'm same thinking, question. I'm thinking that yes. that was his. That was pretty much his party that was shot. His mic. Exactly. Yeah, that was his mic exactly. drop. That was like, you know uh, what? Exactly. Since I'm gone, I don't have to eat lunch in go. this town. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I, I fell for the company line. Fair enough. No, I think he knew, and I think this was his parting shot. And I think, um, but on the more serious side, yeah. I think there is a, uh, this raises a really, this is one of the ethical dilemmas we've been dealing with as journalists, mm-hmm. where um, the question is, are we in an environment where the traditional neutrality is now actually collaborating with an assault on our democracy. And I think this is something that we talk about a lot in class. And I will say, as somebody who covered politics for many, many years, um, I went along in Congress and thought, well, you know, we have different ideas about how to get there, but we all agree on the same goals. We want more democracy and a more just society and a better world for our children. Events of recent years have caused me to profoundly question those assumptions. And I think if, as a journalist, you can't call out what you're seeing uh, in a way that is truthful, you're not telling the truth. Um, To quote one of my uh, former colleagues at USA Today when we were doing an election postmortem, balanced isn't always fair. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, and, and, and really, there was not much in his statement that has not been proven. Exactly. Uh, that was, that was going to be my next there. question. Like, I, mean, I actually went and looked up the word demagogue right. in the dictionary as I was writing yesterday right. to be like, well, what did he say? That well, Donald true? Trump's I mean, picture and, and could be next to that. Yeah. What, what did he say Wikipedia. that wasn't actually mm-hmm. true? And my, my guess is, is that he's been in news meetings at CNN for probably the last five years, if not more, basically saying the same argument. And that was his ability to be able to say what he said in those news arguments to the public live because he's right. I mean, they did attack the Capitol. We all saw it. Mm-hmm. And there's 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 footage of it available for anybody to see on any any streaming platform or or uh, uh, internet uh, access you have. You can you can see that. The fact that the the former president has as recently as what? 2 days ago tried it out that you know the election was rigged uh the FBI is after me this sort of thing so he has he didn't really say anything that hasn't uh that, that isn't based in fact 
Okay, we're gonna talk about a couple of other things now. Let's move online and talk about something happening over at Twitter and something else at Amazon. Amazon first, where this weekend, the streaming service saw its biggest ever premiere for Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. But get this, they put up a three-day delay on all reviews of that show to be able to root out bots that were trying to, kind of like those fake reviews you would see on Yelp, to try and either give away spoilers or to try and decrease audiences kind of feels like maybe they figured out the way to kill the internet troll uh yeah they a little bit they figured it out because i mean there are other places that people were able to well, get yeah. that you know but but I, I i think it's ingenious whether or not it's something that's ethical uh, i'm not Talk so about sure where you think the ethics could be a problem well there. i mean you know if, if you're gonna put it out there i mean yeah. every other movie, uh -huh. be it streamed or showed up in theaters or, or, or run over the air, they put it out there and let people make the decision on their own. And it's almost like they're trying to manipulate, uh, you know, what people's thoughts are on it, even if it is a troll. Okay. Uh, but in the in the in the event in in your effort to get the troll, sure. you may have also uh, inhibited someone who. Well, has I a, think the honest... other the the idea though is it's it's more the equity issue. If you're going to yeah. do it for your movie, what about somebody else's? Okay. Movie? Or somebody else's movie that you happen to be running. Okay. <laughs> exactly. How exactly. would it be different though? And I guess maybe you just answered this, but how would it be really different though f than if we were to run a story on one of our news websites? that had commenting on it and moderated those comments. Gee, with, that's like the old days with letters to the editor where you actually <laughs> called people and made sure they were, I mean, this is, I think what we're moving to yeah. is a more curated, moderated kind of experience. And because that you can still have the, the marketplace of ideas. You can still have a, a, um, a terms of service about what's acceptable to mm -hmm. be commented or not. But if you can tell that it's literally spam or that it's not an actual account holder, that's like a real person that could answer a captcha. Yeah, well, I, think, I think where people get confused here, everybody has a right to their opinion. Mm -hmm and everybody has a right to say what they want to say. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you have the right to be published on the World That's Wide right. Web. That's right. Uh, these are private purveyors, private platforms. If you want to go and stand on a soapbox, uh, there's a, a circle up here at the University of Missouri and you can speak to your heart's content, but that doesn't mean you have the right to be published. And I think platform providers have to grow up and understand that and take responsibility for what's on their platforms. Right. All I say is be transparent about what Absolutely, you're Absolutely, and be equitable. Yes. Okay. Okay, so Twitter, um, they announced the other day, people there announced the other day that it may finally be giving users that edit button that they've been begging for. Oh, thank 15 you. 15 years later. Now, not everybody is gonna get access to it. It's gonna start with paid accounts. Um, and their idea is that the people who would have the edit button would be using it for the sake of correcting typos, correcting words that are left out. I mean, we've all done that when we're tweeting quickly. But there's an interesting question that was posed by somebody on one of the pieces on our links blog about, how that edit button could actually be used in a way that removes some of that transparency you're talking about when you think about how Twitter has become the go-to for politicians, for government agencies to reach an audience directly, that the minute there's something that's posted, it could happen with celebrities too, but the minute there's something posted that has backlash associated with it, that they can go back, edit it, and 
make it disappear. I mean, the inter- there's always the screenshot, right? Like it's probably never actually going to, but this and there's edit the button, internet archive. There is, but yeah. this this edit button may not be the great savior of typos that people well, are Well, it will it be, be the great savior of typos. I do think um, the person who wrote in on the blog has yeah. a really good point. Yeah. That it, yes, it could, just like, believe me, I've seen transcripts of the congressional debates at times, not so much to congressional debates, but we've had transcripts of the speaker's press conferences changed and edited. So yes, people do that when they realize they've uh, made a blooper. But when I worked years ago for an organization called the Sunlight Foundation, we had a, a service called Pollet Whoops, and uh, it was uh, piggybacked on a, a Danish service. Mm-hmm. And we would actually uh, archive uh, politicians' tweets for just exactly that reason. So we could say, go back and say, well, no, actually, you said this. Um, and so I think there are, and we would archive deleted tweets for that reason. So I think people will go back to that. Um, and I would argue that uh, for politicians, it's fair game because they are public figures. Yeah, and, and celebrities as well. I mean, I think that it will open up, an, uh, I guess, another business for someone who is going to say, as soon as they get it, they're going to archive it. And then when or someone scrape immediately uh, or scrape and always immediately be archiving, or, yeah. and, and and soon as someone you know says, well, that's not what my Twitter feed says. They'll go back and say, well, it did say that. I can tell you, you from experience, it. Yeah. it can be done with the right with the right coders. Right, yes. Right. Well, we have some sad news to talk about, and this has actually been developing really even as we sat down today. Uh, the staff of the Las Vegas Review Journal is mourning one of its own. Jeff German was found dead with stab wounds outside of his home on Saturday morning. Police released images of a suspect and say that this stabbing stemmed from a fight that German had had with another individual on Friday. Um, Neighbors, according to reporting yesterday in the Review Journal, had said that this appeared to have been a crime of opportunity, but we were learning just as we were sitting down today that Perhaps investigators are going in a slightly different direction. Yeah, this is quite a story. It um, it indicates that one of the people of interest is a politician that uh, Jeff German was doing some pretty critical reporting about. So uh, it's it's really a shocker, I think, um, and it's uh, disturbing to say the least. The idea that the police have now searched uh, the the home of this politician uh, and that. Uh, according to the story in the uh, Las Vegas paper, the there were reporters who saw a vehicle similar to one that was seen at the scene of the crime at the time of the crime uh, in the presence of this politician. So uh, this is a unfolding story, but um, wow, uh, if we've gotten to that point in the United States, it's scary indeed. Yeah. And and of course, this report, he's a 40-year career. Mm-hmm. He's covered a lot of of politicians. He's covered a lot of the casino mob. owners. He's covered the mob uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, so I'm sure that he probably had his share of people who didn't necessarily like some of the things that he was reporting, in particular this politician that uh, uh, you just pointed out, who is now in the police investigation. So, uh, th- but this is unusual. I mean, most... Uh, either whether you're talking about casino or uh, you're talking about mob bosses or even politicians, don't go to this extreme because this brings uh, law enforcement in and investigation. Uh, so if there is something here, uh, it, it's, it could be 
it could be really damaging to the politician if he's involved in some way. Uh, but it also brings up the point of press freedom again. I mean, the ability to be able to do your job without the fear of losing your life. I mean, that's... that's Well, and normally we talk about this uh, in the context of other countries, right. but um, the fact that we see something like this in our own country is really disturbing. And it's hard not to uh, link it with some of the uh, really uh, harsh and over-the-top rhetoric uh, that a lot of politicians are now engaging in against the press. You know, we are an institution People agree with us, they disagree with us, we make mistakes sometimes, but we are called the fourth estate for a reason. We're pretty important to keeping an eye on democracy. And when we start to question all of our democratic institutions, uh, we really have to wonder what the future holds. Right, right. Kathy, you had said this also reminded you of a case from decades ago. Yes. Uh, Don Bowles, who uh, was another reporter who had done a lot of highly uh, in-depth investigative reporting in Arizona, and his death um, uh, really galvanized the investigative reporters and editors, an organization that um, is headquartered here at the University of Missouri. And I think uh, really IRE, what IRE did after Bowles's death, which was to go flood the zone in Arizona and say, you can you can take out the reporter, but you can't take out the story. We are seeing that over and over again globally because um, there's a great organization in France called Forbidden Stories that's really used the IRE as a model. And I think it's so important for us to support our colleagues, whether they're in Las Vegas or Arizona or Afghanistan or Niger or Turkey, uh, because this is really, we're in a world war in most places, thank God, bullets aren't being uh, expended, but we're really in a war, world war on freedom of press, freedom of thought, and democracy. Yeah, and, it, and it does have a, it can have a chilling effect on, on journalism. I mean, because journalists will really stop and think, okay, do is I really want to, yeah, it's my wife. Must was my life worth this story? Yeah. Is my family's life mm-hmm. worth this story? Uh, is my job is worth my job? This story? Yeah, is my job worth this? Story? I mean, it can't it might not be the journalist who's covering it. Could be the organization that he or she is working for uh, that says, "Well, whoa, wait a minute. You know, this, this is a threat to our organization as a whole. Maybe we're going to we back can't off afford of this the story. legal we bills, can't, even yeah. if we're right, even right. if we're going to win. We can't afford the legal right. bills. So uh, we or we can't afford what uh, the damage that it's going to cause to our reputation if the if the public decides to go with the person that's attacking us as opposed to us out there doing our jobs and pretty the truth. Yeah, and I think the systematic undermining of the press as an institution is opening the door for this kind of censorship and self-censorship. And I think it's not just a problem for reporters. It is a problem for our society and for citizens because, um, and if we don't have the support of people who aren't journalists, um, we're in a world of hurt. Right, right. Okay. Before we go, I want to make sure we take a moment to give a mention to the biggest sports story of the week, Serena Williams' final match at the U.S. Open and what she's calling her evolution into the next phase of her life. The legacy that this woman brings to the sport, her impact on tennis, on women's sports. Uh, it's huge. And and the fact that she was allowed to to, to give this sort of send off at mm-hmm. the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. which is where she pretty much made her name. Uh, so when, when you think about the U.S. Open, you think about 
uh, Serena in the same way that you would think about Arthur Ashe or John McEnroe or that sort of thing. So the fact that she was able to do this at that venue and in that spotlight and bring in all of the uh, the celebrities mm-hmm. and politicians who saw her as someone who, who pretty much put tennis back on the map, especially women's tennis uh, back on the map, but also as someone who is seen as a as a as a figure uh, to to uh, uh, emulate by by women and, and young girls all over the world. You say something interesting there that she put tennis back on the map, because one of the things I was reading, too, was that Serena Williams is credited with forcing journalists to look at tennis as more than a game. And my first thought was, well, what about Billie Jean King? Like, hasn't mm-hmm. women's tennis kind of had that legacy? Well, for her for, for her generation. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. for her generation. Okay, you so that have back Jean on the map thing is, is Martina Vartilova, uh-huh. you had Chris Everett, uh-huh. and then you had Serena and Venus Williams. I mean, so, so, so. Well, the and I think she was so dominant as an athlete. Not right. only was she dominant as an athlete, but she has a tremendous charisma. And so I think uh, not every athlete, there can be great athletes who don't have that kind of charisma, but she was, and I like her phrase about evolving. I'm mm-hmm. going to steal that one. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, but I do think, you know, she will be in the public eye mm-hmm. long after uh, her tennis career is over because she is more than a tennis player. Right. Okay. And sports writers are going to miss her yeah, a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending the last half hour with us today. We're out of time, but do remind you that you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle there is at Views on KBIA. And you can find us wherever you get your podcast downloads. I'd like to thank RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show, to Kyle Felling for handling the audio, and Tim Pilcher for composing our theme music.